Why, hello, and welcome to Season 22, Episode 13 of Happy Jacks Arena Podcast. <laughs> My name is Stu. Lucky this is, 13. <laughs> this is Tappy. This is Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jim. How's it going? How, how busy is your is your are your days these last week or so? Well, I have to tell you, man, it's been really rough uh, last few days because uh, things sort of blown up. Uh, we have like 150. 32 events just in RPGs, mm-hmm. not counting the multiple events that we have on Games on Demand as well. We should bring us up, wait until the 160s. Let me just say that Jim is the the uh, RPG... I am the supervisor of RPGs and a board member on in Strategicon who has three conventions of year, which two of which you guys are great uh, and show up to. And uh, uh, We have Orcon in February, we have uh, GameX in May, and here in the end of August, September, we have Gateway. Um, and there are, for those of you who are unfamiliar, and I don't know how you can be a listener of this program and be <laughs> unfamiliar, but if you're a new listener, it's a, uh, a gaming convention that's uh, run by Gamers for Gamers. It's a nonprofit organization that basically just puts on these conventions and uh, makes sure that the hobby of tabletop gaming is promoted and give everybody a safe place to come over here, gather, join with their community, uh, play with people that they might not necessarily play with at home, and uh, enjoy games and events that they may or may not be able to enjoy at home. Uh, Larger scale type stuff that's really cool. And uh, I personally run the role playing department, which is why I fell in with you guys, and uh, it's literally blowing up. I, I was actually a little disappointed that we didn't have as many events uh, during uh, GameX, but in Gateway, uh, I had to reach out to other departments for space. Oh, that's great! I, I didn't that's great. Actually, I, I filled up every <clears throat> single one. And it's not just, you know, Saturday craze balls. It's Saturday, Sunday. I filled a whole lot of rooms on Friday. I mean, oh, really? Right. A lot of Friday games. <laughs> like, uh, so the, I, I call it the room Tetris game was a little bit difficult this time around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of fun, fun, fun stuff to do. Excuse me. Ranging from video games all the way down to classic card games and everything in between. Board games galore. We have a whole ballroom that's devoted to nothing but miniatures and board board games. Uh, we have uh, a fantastic exhibitors hall with people selling wares. Uh, not only games, but cool geeky related stuff. Um, and... Uh, also, role-playing games of every ilk, including LARPs, which uh, just has just got a new head of the department uh, mm-hmm. this year, and we went from five or six LARP events, one or two that never went off, uh, to about a dozen or so now. Wow! Whoa. Uh, Holy metric! So you know, hey, put in somebody that's passionate about growing a department, and you know, w- when we are having space issues, and uh, my buddy Mike, who unfortunately can be here, who is in charge of assigning space at the convention was like, oh my god, what am I going to do? I'm like, we're in a hell of our own making. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we're the one that de- de- demanded that, that uh, certain departments get more attention now that they do have that attention and they want more space. We're like, uh. Right. Um, god, so you have a, over a dozen LARPs? Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and it's, it's pretty awesome. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them are entry-level ones, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's... Uh, and not only that, but uh, I don't know if anybody remembers year, uh, a couple of years ago when I started the, the party games department because mm-hmm. I found that 
people that play werewolf and two rooms and a boom and a lot of those things sort of were orphaned and sort of put into departments they don't belong to because they didn't fit into anything. Uh, so I created a new department and I had uh, my, uh, a brilliant gentleman named Will, William Hill, Hillstrom head up that department. And now, not only do we have a literally a bazillion of these games now, the social deduction type of large format games, mm-hmm. but we also have a special guest that's uh, a, a designer uh, uh, for, for this type of game. So not only are we drawing more players, but we're actually drawing some industry people uh, oh, awesome. in, cool. in, in, into being here. So, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a con definitely in growth, and uh, we're suffering because of that mm-hmm. growth in, in, in a certain sense, because we're, we're starting to get critical mass in the amount of space mm-hmm. that we can actually take up at the Hilton, mm-hmm. Hilton LAX. Um, so... Now it's becoming more and more of a challenge to fit all the games and uh, the 2,000 plus people that show up every convention to play them. So you're going to expand to the second hotel? We are actually (laughs) really stuck as to what we can do. Right. Um, We have a lot of challenges. uh, And for those people that are really curious about, you know, maybe starting up a convention or running a convention, there are a lot of challenges to it. Uh, in the fact that a you have to have enough committed volunteers to be able to man all the stuff that you need them to man, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, without a st- I keep like I keep telling all of my GMs and the wonderful people that volunteer to run games and also the wonderful group of people that volunteer to run my HQ, we wouldn't have a convention with people that didn't run games. Oh right, yeah. you know what, mm-hmm. what will we have? We just basically have a meeting area and people would knit. I don't know, but we do have <laughs> knitting on the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so it, it's it's really just a fantastic community of of gamers and and nerds and wonderful, beautiful people that just come together and selflessly go through the the, the labor of creating these games, creating characters, handouts. Uh, not only that, but in miniatures, painting a whole bunch of miniatures and letting other people touch them. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I kind I kind of want to develop a uh, miniatures gladiator game where knitting is the uh, mechanic. <laughs> so you like knit a row like in secret, and they knit a row, and then sometimes, you match the colors sometimes up. Sometimes Tappy, I go, <laughs> how does this work? Why are we <laughs> Welsh bastard? I don't even I don't even know you years ago, but we're just so simpatico. But um, yeah, because stabbing somebody with a knitting needle if they if they do you wrong is also a great idea. I told him you you can't. This, this is armament. You can't allow this at con. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to arm people before the argument. Does. It's like, exactly. You're going to have a knife sharpening class. Uh, but, yeah, I mean... And reloading and class. Right. <laughs> board game tournaments, people bringing in their stuff. I mean, it's, it's just uh, amazing to me that uh, there are so many people that are so passionate about gaming that are willing to commit basically four straight days to not only enjoying themselves, but making sure that other people are enjoying themselves. Right. Because literally this runs Friday through Monday. I show up Thursday night, I wake up uh, Saturday morning, and it's nonstop. It, the, the convention never closes. Uh, we have games going on 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and that's one of the main challenges we have about space, is that we have to find an area that's okay with activity 24 hours a day. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your regular convention centers or your community centers or your other type of things that you might think about reaching out to. Uh, we were actually looking at places like Orange Coast College, things like that, that, that have facilities, but they wouldn't allow us to be able to be open like that right. uh, for that time period. So, you know... That's pretty much got to be a hotel. It's yeah. got to be a hotel. Yeah. Um, Maybe a Boy Scout camp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
I was thinking about just setting up a whole bunch of teepees out in the desert where those two dinosaur stores are. <laughs> oh, in Cabazon. Yeah, that would yeah, be right. so cool yeah, and kitschy, yeah. wouldn't it? If it wasn't for the fact that it'd probably be hotter than crap, people would die. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. You better bring um, out think some it's trailers of showers. I <laughs> think <laughs> <laughs> we need trailers of showers here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That is on the, the way to EJ, and yeah, it's probably about 110. Yeah. There. Uh, Maybe But in any case, it's. Uh, I, I, I honestly think that we're probably going to reach about a, a 2,800 attendee cap, and wow. that's when it's going to start getting. Uh, we're going to start rethinking about what we want to do. But the, the hardest thing about it is that. This convention, to us, I mean, is, is kind of unique, uh, and West Coast conventions are a lot like this, uh, in that it's absolutely all about gaming. There's there's no, like, people trying to premiere TV shows, there's nothing like Comic-Con-y, it's just you show up to the point where we have a seminars department, but nobody ever shows that crap because everybody just wants to play games. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, that kind of feeling is the one we want to preserve at this convention. It's just about mm-hmm. gaming. Uh, and And... Uh, you know, sort of trying to slip out to other things and maybe make use of spaces that don't run the way that our convention usually runs. We really want, are very resistant to that. We kind of like what we have. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that our attendees really like what we have. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 it it's definitely going to be a challenge, but we're, we're at this hotel till 2020 contractually, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we at least got a couple more years there to see what we can do. And... Uh, Previous forays into trying to find another area have, have not worked out well for us. Right. Um, well, I mean, it, and it's that's a pretty it's a pretty big hotel. It's a huge hotel. Yeah. It's, it's it's the biggest convention space, hotel convention space at, at LAX. Right. Uh, and uh, you know they love us there, which is great because you know the whatever room quota, whatever food quota, whatever quota they put, you in always, hit it. Yeah, you always, we hit, always it. hit it. We always hit it. I'm sure problem. there are very few fistfights. <laughs> Yeah, I would say say few. I didn't say none. Well, you know what happens on the board meeting stays at board meeting. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to say that this kind of organization is all buddy-buddy. There is some contention. Um, So you do trial by stone? Well, you know, John was on the board. That's all I got to (laughs) say. No, it's... uh, It's definitely a lot of voices reaching consensus, but... Mm -hmm. To reach that consensus, sometimes it's but that's got to get that's got to get worse when you are now competing for space. Too. Yeah, but th- th- one of the worst things about this convention when we first took it over, and uh, you know, this, this goes into the, stu- the history of the convention, is that the, con- the, the 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 owners that have it now, which is basically are uh, uh, the head guy who's Eric uh, and the people that that took over the convention. There were just a bunch of attendees that decided th- and th- that decided that they were going to buy the convention off the, o- the previous owner who was basically running it into the ground. Uh, and I, if, for the people that actually have been to that convention like the early 90s, uh, there were very few events. It was, it was kind of sad uh, before then because it was, it, it's been around since like the 70s. It's a very old set of conventions. Um, it was just starting well, to wind I, the down. Fir- it's the first convention I went to, and it was in Anaheim at the Anaheim exactly. Sheridan. Yeah, that was OrcCon, because uh, OrcCon was originally Orange County Con. <coughs> okay. Uh, that's what uh, that was for. And it was held in Anaheim. And, at, you know, th- there were so, there were a few years that were... It was a really, really good con, a very vibrant con. Uh, but, like I said, you know, it's one of those things where over a span of time, you end up sort of losing passion for what you're doing, and you're just going through the motions. 
and you know that 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 even happens here, and that's when we 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 get really concerned about department heads that might be burning out or might be uh, just going through the motions and not being into it as much as 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 they were. Sort of swapping things out. Maybe we could find another place for you. But the convention went downhill because you know people wanted to make too much money off it, and it's not really a money making machine. And people sort of lost interest. The people that were running sort of lost interest in it. So a group of attendees decided to purchase the con, mm-hmm. uh, and they pooled their money together and purchased the con. Uh, and now it's it's a it, we run it pretty much like a nonprofit. Everything that we make on that con is reinvested into the con, and it's literally exactly that. It's a convention by gamers for gamers. The only reason this convention exists is because there is about a dozen or so people that love gaming so much that right. they took it upon themselves to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember um, I was not gaming at the time, but the Boggards got hired by uh, Gen Con West. Mm-hmm. To come and perform, and we split up into two groups. I think we were in the band then, weren't you? Band then? Maybe. I think you were. Mm-hmm. We split up into two separate groups, and one did Saturday and one did Sunday. And I was in the Sunday group, and and, th- and that convention was not very well attended. Nope. Oh, uh, I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, practically they, empty. They really made a go of it, and they spent a pretty penny on that. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and it just didn't go off. I I mean I can't really provide any insight as to why it didn't. I don't know. Because uh, I th- I would have thought that something that already had like a fixed name that people yeah. knew, uh, easily accessible in the West Coast. All I can say is that West Coast is rough. There's a lot of uh, competing events and a lot of things that you oh, can yeah. do on a bright sunny day, which is you've got Nasbury Farm and you have Disneyland and you have Sea World and you have the d- beach, which is free, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, movies and, and and all kinds of entertainment. Cinema, oh yeah, a lot of com- a lot of competition for your entertainment dollar sure. in Southern California. Yeah, it's the same thing the Renaissance Fair has. I mean, it's like we got to com- we're competing in in a part of the country that probably has more entertainment on weekends than any place else in the United States, mm-hmm. except maybe New York. Yeah, I mean, well, this is the entertainment capital of the world. Yeah, it's Hollywood, right. you know. Uh, but we also have, I, well, no. <laughs> well, I say we have nature too. I mean, we oh, have yeah. mountains and oh yeah, beach and the weather and is conducive. And I mean, desert and 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 you're yeah. no more than two hours away from any only any kind of ecosystem. Yeah. You can walk, any kind exactly. Of you want to go to the beach? Yeah. You want to go skiing? You want to whatever you want to do? You can do it right here, um, and usually just about any time of the year, really. So, I think that that's also an effect, and I think that we that this convention. Um, has a lot of uh, has a lot of loyalty because it's just been around here so long, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people that just plan their vacation time around coming to this convention. And one of the great things that I've seen is that people that I used to know and pal around with uh, back when I used to just simply be an attendee, they're here with their kids, their mm-hmm. wives. It's become a sort of a family if, uh, affair. And uh, uh, <coughs> I was talking to 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 one of these gentlemen uh, last con. And he says. So much cheaper than I mean I I can we can go to Disneyland, and I'll and I'll with me and my two kids and I'll literally drop two grand. Oh yeah, easy just <coughs> getting in. You can food, park hopper tickets parking. probably one hundred and fifty two hundred dollars. One hundred seventy five yeah. to two hundred I think is something. What? Yeah, oh yeah. Ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and so I can come here. Uh, the wife and I can volunteer for eight hours apiece while the kids r- run around, get free badges. Mm-hmm. And all I have to do is pay for a hotel room, and we bring our own food. I mean, really get out of here for about eight hundred bucks for an entire weekend vacation with us right. and the kids, right. and everybody's engaged and having some and doing mm-hmm. something. Oh fun. yeah, the last three cons I've attended, I took put, took both my kids with me, and they've had a blast. I mean, it's really kid friendly, and it's one of the things that we're really trying to work on at the convention to sort of focus some more stuff towards uh, having more kids attend, uh, and uh, like I 
it, I, I keep getting things in my crosshairs of things that I want to improve, and uh, Mike and I are, are usually pretty pushy about getting, <laughs> getting things right. done. Uh, <laughs> what? No. No, no. <laughs> you and Mike? Mike no. pushy? No. No, we don't think our ideas are better than everybody else's. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> we don't work like that. Uh, but in, in any case, it's... Uh, it's a good time to be had by all, and it's and uh, we are victims of our own success, and and hopefully we can keep this uh, this train a chugging as long as we possibly can. And uh, I also wanted to let you guys know that uh, your participation, especially in my department, has been so wonderful, and we appreciate you guys so much. You're very, you know, giving me time on your podcast to promote the convention, even though there are a lot of your listeners. I am very sorry. That you are far away <laughs> and have no interest in this whatsoever. Well, but we've had we've had listeners from pretty far away. Yeah, fly out here for conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I, and I hope that you had a great time, and I hope that it paid <laughs> off for you. Uh, England, Japan. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah, I, and I remember the one time where, where uh, the guy came all the way from from England, and I, and I met him at that the podcast at the convention, and I was just stunned that yeah. somebody did that. I would love to go to a role playing game convention in Japan. Because they have a, a completely different set of pen and paper RPGs that were very, very different mm-hmm. to Western ones. And they're really, really fucking cool. <laughs> I mean, I, awesome. I remember I just picked up a copy of the There's a Gundam role playing mm-hmm. game. And just because it was the Gundam role playing game, it's all in Japanese. I can't read a lick of it and don't know what it is. I look at the pretty pictures and go, ah, but I would love to be able to read it. <laughs> and just play have, it. have K run it. Yeah, have K run it. <laughs> Um, there's one that I picked up a while ago called Tenra Bantro Zero. That is, oh man, it's such a great world. It's got, you know, little kids that are piloting like 20 foot mecha that are powered by magic. We have people who have like rocket fist hands that also have like <laughs> a magic computer in their brain that has like, you know, radar. And this is all set in like samurai type space. Oh, oh, and then right. you have like samurai that have these like gems implanted in them that have like um, uh, demons attached to them, so they can use the demon power to like like Hulk out into these huge like <laughs> forms. Know, we used it's to sit so there fucking and fantasize cool. about <laughs> taking L five R to a cyberpunk place. Uh, yeah, I remember <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the the dragon tattooed men. Those were, there'd be like drugs in the tattoos that uh-huh. would activate them, like <laughs> and uh, the 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 unicorn would be basically motorcycle gang guys. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the crab would have these giant hulking mecha <laughs> with like huge shields and big tetsubos, and we had it all planned out. It, 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 it but yeah, the, the the craziness of of the anime style is is fantastic. Oh, it's so fun. It's just so fun. The, the raw creativity of it. Mm-hmm. But anyways, gateway. It's coming up next weekend over over the three day weekend. It starts on Friday, goes through Monday. If you're near Southern California and want to attend, please do. It's a fantastic, good time. I'll be running a role playing game. There are several members of Happy Jacks that are also running role playing games. Yep. If you're at all into the Cortex game that I'm in and the actual play, Jib is actually running sessions of that game with alternate characters that will affect the plot line oh, good. Of, of, of the main story in the actual play. So really if you want idea. to participate in that, that's that's a good uh, time to do it. But we welcome you uh, with open arms. Like I said, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great place for men, women, children, families, uh, whatever you are, whatever you want to be, uh, you can be it here. So, welcome. Excellent. <clears throat> and that's strategicon.net if you need more mm-hmm. information on yeah. that. I'm just very relieved that blowing up was a good thing. 
when you started. He's like, we're blowing oh, we're up. We're blowing right? up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So strategicon.net. Strategicon.net. Yeah, and you can also follow us on Facebook. And you just search for Strategicon. We'll pop right up. We also have Twitter. Uh, and we're really good about responding to questions on either one of those platforms. So, uh, yeah, just uh, check us out. Give us, uh, uh, give us a ring. Let us know what you think. Uh, and also, if anybody has any feedback, there's also a, a great uh, area in the Happy Jacks forum uh, that you can go ahead and ask me questions and, uh, and or post any significant things that you found over there. Excellent. Uh, in this episode, I should have done this at the very top, <coughs> uh, the Magic o- Octopus sends us questions about GMing, small groups, and hex crawls. Uh, Steve from Atlanta sends us a success story, and Andreas from Sweden writes in about settings and using food and drink as props. But first, if you'd like to email us, email us at happyjacksrpg at gmail.com. That's happyjacksrpg at gmail.com. We're on all the social media at happyjacksrpg, all one word. And if you would like to watch the show live, which you should do, it's on Fridays at 7 p.m. Pacific time. Go to happyjacks.org slash live, and that will take you to all the places where you can do that. Which right now is just Twitch, because we're still in penalty box for YouTube. <laughs> Fucking tappy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. That's even my fault. It isn't the same. I'm used to, I'm used yeah. to looking at, at Kimmy's angry face every time that's brought up. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but it's like... Yeah, it's... Just, Oh man, I want to. She needs a Tetsubo. <laughs> no, you don't want to give her a Tetsubo. tetsubo. You do. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to give her a weapon, <laughs> man. You see the guns on that girl? No, <laughs> I, I can't awesome. run that fast. <laughs> <laughs> I am but a mortal, and she is Wonder Woman. Yeah, she needs to have a. She needs to have a Tetsubo when we do the LARP. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Wonder if we can convince her to get a Tetsubo tattoo. Yeah, that's an awful. Not. That's an awfully uh, that's big awfully commitment. <laughs> it's awfully permanent. Maybe a Sharpie tattoo. Oh, yeah. <coughs> I'll do it. No one will know what it is. <laughs> Why is there a long black smudge on your arm? <laughs> I don't know, but I punched Happy for it. <laughs> uh, I probably deserved it. <laughs> All right. Uh, two questions from the Magic Octopus. Hello, Woo-hoo. douche ballers and ballerinas. I sent this topic to you in February, but I don't think it got covered. I might be wrong, but don't correct me. It, it, it didn't. In all caps. But now... <laughs> um, you see, my email. I, I use one email address for everything. And boy, it gets full. Boy. Like two hundred emails a day, not spam. Like actual stuff. Uh, not just happy jacks, but work and yeah. Uh, you ever dude, considered splitting that up? I really I like being able to get it all in one place. The, the, the then I is, divide it once I get it. But, but I, I, I just open several Gmail accounts and put them all on my phone so they're just coming in different inboxes. Right. And I can just check them See, what I do is I open a new Gmail address and I forward it to my regular email address. That way they all show up. Because what I try to do is just put stuff into folders. into folders and then and then deal with them when the time comes. Mm. But anyways, back to right. <laughs> my favorite non-vertebrate. <laughs> Due to some unfortunate <laughs> and even some fortunate circumstances, my previously five-player group got reduced to just two players plus me as GM. Stop killing your players. Yeah. <laughs> literal. Jeez. Like, literal. Literal. Just stop <laughs> it. I know they're tasty. <laughs> First, step one, stop cutting the brake lines on their cars. <laughs> All right. Stop devouring their flesh in the name of your dark god. Step two. <laughs> uh, what would be your advice on running such a, for such a small group? I asked 
on one forum, and the response I got was, I've been doing it for years, there are no problems. Which wasn't helpful. <laughs> the problems I've, fa- I, I've found I'm are... I'm drowning here, and you're telling yeah. me what the water looks like. <laughs> like well, well, just get better. Get yeah. good. Right. I'm drowning. Oh, I've been swimming for years. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> uh, character interaction is less dynamic because there are on- there's only one other PC. This is my main problem. The players aren't the most proactive pl- role players. Depending on the system, combat can be too swingy. Uh, if one character is down, suddenly you're down 50% of your combat power on average. Adding NPCs to the party can be one solution, but that's a lot more work for the GM. Uh, and then he has a second question. Yeah. Let's go ahead and address this one first. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one possible solution is something that's done in the Apocalypse world. Mm-hmm. Whereas, have them make two characters and play both of them. Because yeah, in an Apocalypse World, it's like, oh, well, the GM plays 10 characters or 20 characters or whatever. You can play two. Right. That's okay. Now it does, you'll have two characters and two characters. I mean, usually, like, your two characters will probably not interact with each other. Um, that would be one of the drawbacks I can see to that. Yeah, it takes yeah. a very special yeah. role player to play with themselves. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, you could jump in if. They want to talk to one of their other characters. You as the GM could jump in and do that, um, but that would also give them more stuff to do when you get to the combat section of the game. If it's a really combat-heavy like situation, so I'm not sure what type of game you're running here, but you can get really creative with a two-character system because you don't necessarily have them have them play two PCs. What you can do is have each one play their PC and then have a non-corporeal ally of some sort or some kind of spirit guide or something like that that'll, that that maybe doesn't really sort of act in line in the combat but sort of provides buffs for the character so they don't feel like they need to play two characters. But the cool thing about it is, let's say you have a, the, uh, a, guy being followed, a couple of guys that are being followed around by spirits. You can have a vignette where they're playing in the spirit world, a new part of the storyline there. Move oh, yeah. back to the player mm-hmm. characters when they have that, and then or have a situation where all four of them are interacting. So you're creating sort of like a little bit of a separation between the two characters in a narrative sense that allows it to make a little bit more sense for the players and allows you for, to basically draw out a couple of characters here and there if it starts getting a little bit too complex to have all four. You know, there are a lot of different things that you can do to uh, allow player characters to have a little bit more interaction with each other and different things by putting them in different environments and creating different settings. Um, Also, you know, hey, you're down to two players. You're the GM. hate to say it, but it's on your shoulders, bro. Uh, Adding NPCs and and, and doing the extra work, Mm -hmm. that might be something that you just need to do for your narrative. Or you can just run a game like uh, Doctor Who, uh, The Adventures of Doctor Who, perfect game for just two players. Mm -hmm. A doctor and a companion works out perfect. You don't uh, need happy to Sith be Adventures. Exactly. That's yeah. not a game, but it Happy Sith Adventures actually played that. I remember <laughs> and when I wrote when I wrote example in the in the Rodian's entrails on the f- floor with my my Sith warrior. Uh, it was like it was like the Sith warrior comes in the first person that fucks with me. <laughs> um, but you know it that. There, there's a lot of stories to be told, and a lot there are a lot of stories that can be told with just two players, um, and uh, and you can still create a lot of drama with two players. A buddy cop movie type of game yeah. works great. Oh sure, yeah. Um, one thing that I think you don't want to do is make a GMPC. Yeah, that is one of the, the things that I really dislike, 
it, usually I ran into it when I was growing up and there was somebody who was an inexperienced GM and they would make a PC for themselves to help lead the characters and it just turned into that character doing everything. Well, it goes into railroading and, yeah. and then also in a role playing game the story should be about the player characters. Yes. Period. Mm-hmm. That, and and there's already enough issues as a GM, at least for me, to make making sure that each player gets enough spotlight in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's enough problems with that to, yeah. to start creating start creating more. Um, but there there are ways of putting NPCs into play that not necessarily take over the plot, uh, but they they can be useful and they don't need to be henchmen. You can actually make mentor characters or or. Uh, I always love to make a character that the players can go to if they feel like they're completely lost in a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't know what direction they're going, and there's sort of like a sage character that they can go to and just ask a few questions. He's not going to give everything away, but he can nudge characters in the right direction. Because there's nothing more frustrating with player characters when they just don't know where this mystery is going. Right. And mm-hmm. they, 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 they reach a perceived wall. Dead end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they get super frustrated, and then they start making their own stories to play in. And, right, and that That's can be fun too. Awful. Yeah, which, 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 which is too. also super fun. Yeah, right. yeah, but you know, if you if you've put a lot of time into the story and you really do think that your players would really enjoy it if they actually got to suss it out, then you know that that's that's also an option. But uh, you'll find that if you start creating a vibrant enough world where things start happening to the characters in a dynamic enough way, they will find their way towards interacting with each other in a more meaningful way. Uh, and that's really the, the crux of the problem, right? Is making your player characters play with each other mm-hmm. as much as they possibly can in a smaller group because there, there, there isn't enough there, there isn't enough you know, grass on the field for you to do anything else. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that, and, but that's, that's a real problem because your the, the the dynamic between two two characters can only be so complex. You know what I you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and I think it, it and and I also think there are players who are going to feel more inhibitions about doing so in a smaller group, whether rather than in a larger group. I think that second one is true. I don't know about the first one being true. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Monster Hearts, that you all should be watching on Mondays on Happy Jacks, uh, APV. Right. Um, we basically had a situation where we have five players because there are two GMs that are kind of switching off so the other right. can also play a character. But we had three characters interacting with each other and then two characters completely separate for maybe like four or five sessions. Like we kept on trying to get oh, together. Oh, and split then split the party, right. Yeah, but the party was split for that entire time and it worked great. Right. Like normally splitting the party is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so myself and Mac, our characters just interacted with each other for most of the game so far and it's it's worked great mm-hmm. the thing though is that I think both of our characters have motivations like clearly defined mo- motivations to ourselves but that aren't necessarily known to the other and so you get to explore and right. and discover what that interaction means rather than simply you know coming to the idea of oh well we should do this yes okay well, well, there are also games that systemically establish relationships between the characters, and I think those really kind of lend themselves to this kind of play. Because mm-hmm. when you have a game like Fate, where when you're creating your oh, character, yeah. you have to establish a relationship with right. the other players, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, th- that that gives you sort of like a touchstone to sort of go, okay, this is what this is what the situation is, and this is where we can take it. 
Uh, and that takes a, l- a little bit of creativity on the player's side, but that little investment up front really pays off towards the end. Right. And there's also the idea, like you said, what if you have two sets of two characters in the same story doing different things in the story? Right. Oh. Uh, so, you know, you, you make two sets of characters. They necessar- don't necessarily ever have to meet. Sure. They're just doing different things. And the cool thing about it is that, you know, they can meta a little bit and have these characters set up certain things for the other characters. And it's kind oh of my god, that be, that's super cool. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you, and, and the cool thing, if you're a really creative GM, you can really start putting uh, really tense situations into the game where they have to either figure out a, a, a way to achieve a symmetrical goal between the two sets of characters or just help themselves or just help the other guys and uh, depending on the relationship between the two sets or whether they're aware of each other right yeah uh, so okay, yeah, yeah. And they, they may not necessarily have to be they not may not necessarily yeah. have to be yeah exactly so you could actually have mm-hmm. like a two sets of detectives from two different precincts investigating what seems to be different uh, crimes, but are actually one crime. Mm-hmm. Or two courtiers in an L5R game, and then two samurai in the field, and oh, like, yeah. what the courtiers Perfect. are doing gives the samurai stuff to do. Exactly. Or, oh, yeah. And then you really buy into that motivation, and then what's what's happening here is really, really important, because you don't want your uh, bushi to get screwed over. Or two nobles really in a fantasy setting that have a couple of of people that do things in the in in you know the unlikely noble hangout places and right. they they do a lot of uh, a lot of machinations up at the top and they may be setting plans and playing a big chess game while well, these guys are in the sewers fighting rats mm-hmm. so you know and and one affects the other so there's a lot of ways to sort of expand on on two players if you're really creative about how you structure your story remember story frames can change the entire environment of a game uh, whether you frame it as a, f- a part of it as a flashback, where you, or whether you have uh, two different storylines that are moving backwards, you know, look at all these films that use these really kind of unique ways of storytelling that you can go ahead and also use as part of a role playing mm-hmm. game. Yeah, I ran a uh, groups game in college that lasted a long time, many years, and there was a point where I was down to two players, and, uh, uh, Brian and Fred, for a couple sessions, two or three sessions, I think. <clears throat> and <clears throat> NPCs became a key part of that. They interacted with each other because they had a lot of history because it had been a, a larger group and it kind of got whittled down over time because of schedule or whatever. Mm-hmm. And but so the two characters had already had a lot of real actual history within the game. So there was a, always dynamics going on between them. But it became very important for their to, the, the NPCs really started to become uh, a key th- thing for them to key off of. Right. Because, I mean, there's a lot of times when I'm GMing, especially when you've got very proactive players, and he doesn't have proactive players, mm-hmm. so that's not, this isn't quite great advice, but um, there are times when I'm running a game, L5R, or even the vampire game I ran, uh, where I don't have to do much for a session, because their own interactions with each other are taking mm-hmm. taking precedent over what's going on, yeah, and, that's and usual normal, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and and it's just that tends to happen less if it's the, the fewer players there are. Yeah. It, 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 it got saying? to the point. Where it's like, why do I even bother to write anything fucking down? Just do what you can. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but when it, as as that, as that game whittled down to a, a couple of players, it, it grew eventually again. But there, I, I found that NPCs and suddenly my prep suddenly. Went, came back to center stage more than it had before, even with very 
very proactive players. Yeah. Because there's only there's only so much stuff they're going to do because they're interested in seeing what, what I've got in store anyway. Right. So. Right, but well, the more the more the more flesh you add to your NPCs, though, the more that the characters interact and the more the characters are going to draw entertainment from it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that my friend uh, Chris did back in the day when we used to play Shadowrun, so we only had two players, but uh, we sort of needed three because of the way that sort of the way the game works with classes not really classes but professions mm-hmm. is he says oh yeah uh, my character is uh, split personality and he split his pool of points and character generation between two Whoa. personalities the skill points right so he had a decker and a, and a street samurai and they were both the same character but depending on who was in charge at he the only time. had access to certain skills yeah. wow. and, but the thing is he would basically sort of randomize it he figured out a way that you know when I roll this and when the the characters randomly shifted back and forth so he created an extra challenge in that <laughs> like, but we need the decker right now just give me the decker <laughs> uh, uh, which, and, and that was fun but the thing is he it, he had a, one character fit two roles in a very unique and creative way to to sort of frame a character mm-hmm. Uh and he had completely unique backgrounds for each one. One was imaginary, one was real. He never told us which was which. That's awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and Shadowrun is a great example of a game that's really easy to bring in NPCs when you need them. Yeah. And then leave them out when you don't, which is when you put together a team. Right. Right? So the two characters might have a run that they do a whole bunch of legwork on and then put a team together to actually do the run. But not only that, but you have investigatory you have investigative characters with a lot of contacts that may not be great in con- in combat. Mm-hmm. Make two sets of characters. Oh, yeah. One of them it does all the footwork, does all the oh, contact yeah. stuff. Yeah. Sure. And then they have their buddies that take care of the wet work oh. and then you can play you can actually play the run. It's like Mephidius Star Trek has there are main characters and then there are supporting characters. Yeah. And so you have this pool of supporting characters so that when you're like Vulcan engineer is stuck on the ship, you can jump down with your human red shirt or whatever yeah. and go kick some ass. Yeah. Uh, actually, I mean, uh, in Nominee, if you ever... Oh, I game, remember in Nominee. Yeah, it had something that was like that in the fact that, uh, you know, you played an angelic or demonic form, but the, the way that you would interact on Earth is that you would take over this vessel and you could have multiples of them. Uh, so it sort of created sort of like this uh, dungeon master sort of feel when you ran your character because you could have different vessels that did different things. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could totally make wrap a game around that where you have basically one consciousness with a lot of different bodies. Or do oh, it would be awesome to do something like uh, what Altered Carbon, where mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. a bunch of different sleeves with yeah. a bunch of different uh, different oh, abilities, yeah. and you plug yourself into those yeah. sleeves. Well, you can just do an eclipse face. Yeah, like eclipse that. face. Yeah, yeah. And then you can actually, they have forks where you can take your personality, copy it, and put you it put in, in another sleeve. Else. Yeah. So, like I said, man, depending on the type of game you're running, you yeah. could totally make it go easy or hard with it. You just... Yeah. It, Not knowing what system you're running kind of makes it more difficult. But I highly recommend you don't play D&D with this if you have two players, because it doesn't work. Mechanically, that'd be tough. Yeah, yeah, that'd be tough. Um, it's it's designed for it's four designed players. for for at least four players. You uh-huh. have to have, and they have roles. It's like playing an MMO. Uh, you, you have to have somebody that can absorb some damage. You have to have somebody that can deal some damage, and you have to have somebody that keeps people up. Yeah, uh, right. those are the three mm-hmm. things you have to have. If you don't have all that, it just makes it really kind of difficult, mm-hmm. and, and, and and therefore frustrating for your players. Yeah. And you could have an NPC uh, member of the party. That, that the players themselves just determine what they do. If you yeah, what would be fun too is you have a pacifist cleric. 
Right. He doesn't want to fight in any. He'll keep you up, but he won't fight a thing. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Uh, his next question. Uh, I have a, another question. Has anyone ever ran uh, or played in a hex crawl? I'm planning one right now. A hex crawl is a sandbox game where the game world is a hex map that the characters go to explore. There is no central narrative, but there are random encounters and keyed locations. The narrative, sh- the narrative should emerge from the characters interacting with the world. Neat. Since the theme of a hex crawl is exploration, how would you integrate character motivations and backstory into an exploration-heavy game? My campaign is going to be the rediscovery of the world after an Earth Dawn-inspired fantasy apocalypse. Uh, the characters have lived their lives underground, but now venture outside because the apocalypse has subsided. Has subsided. Uh, any advice here would be most valuable. Thanks in advance. Uh, it is remarkable that your podcast is still going strong and remains one of, if not the best in the industry. Thank you. Uh, you have hit the perfect balance of entertainment and information. Keep jacking the happy magic <laughs> octopus. Mm-hmm. Indeed, my favorite non-vertebrate. Um, <laughs> wow. Isn't that an invertebrate? Invertebrate, you're right. Sorry. Because it's in. <laughs> they, um, like they have like a... They, uh, have, a beak. they have a beak. Is, uh, am I thinking of the a squid that has like this almost car- cartilaginous oh, strip? Yeah, yeah. They, they, oh, that cuttlefish, cuttlefish and squid. They have a cuddle yeah. bone. Okay, yeah. that's it. Cuddle Look. bone. <laughs> I got a cuddle bone. <laughs> <laughs> you okay there? Yeah, man, I got a cuddle bone. I got a Sorry, cuddle right, bone. Just, <laughs> just give me a minute. I got to work through it, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I got to take care of something. <laughs> <laughs> Narrative heavy game. Or, 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 mm. or exploration yeah. heavy game. Uh, go. No. Um, I've done this in the past. I find this to be especially very front heavy on prep, obviously. Because unless you come up with some sort of system to sort of try to figure out what is going to be because you no, don't necessarily know what direction they're going to go, uh, and if you don't have a plot hook per se, I think you're eventually going to end up having some plot hooks. I mean... Everybody wants... Every, yeah. People love narratives. They're going to build a narrative around something. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it sounds either, like either the players are or the GM yeah. is going to. It sounds like random encounters are going to happen and the players figure out how they are all connected. Right. And at that point, it's up to the GM to say, why, yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this these magic this entire system is basically fishing for plot hooks. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, because, and, and so your job as a GM when it comes to this kind of sort of random open world game is... You just got to throw, cast as often as you possibly can, and wait for something to mm-hmm. stick. And when your player player characters seem to wrap themselves around something, mm-hmm. uh, then you just go with it. Uh, and because you're you're really not you're not setting up things on your hex for to to simply be sort of like a combat encounter. What you want to do is you want to go. This is where you're going. There are goblins. There's a temple. Find out what the temple is. What the temple is. Mm-hmm. There's something sinister going on that's just beyond the goblins, uh, you know. And 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 you'll know when your players get interested in something, mm-hmm. and you know, and 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 you just need to just work and build on that. Um, when it comes to integrating character motivations and backstories into an exploration-heavy game, you make the motivations and backstories about exploration. Why are why sure. do they but leave I mean, their? I'm assuming they come from a safe place. It's got, it has well, to yeah, get there underground safe, somewhere. But yeah. it has to like the motivation. There has to be a motivation to explore. So it's like you 
you all lived underground. You're leaving because there's no more food. Cool. You're right. finding food, or maybe there's a threat coming. You go outside, and holy shit, there are orcs. We need to hide until we get something. Like, or I have to leave my home because I've been ostracized because I broke a taboo. Because my like, pit boy told me yeah. so. Right. Like you, you <laughs> make the motivations and backstories exploration mm-hmm. yeah. instead of well, I'm a carpenter. Okay, cool. How do I tie that into exploration? Well, you don't. Because no, you're going to emerge and say, <laughs> I'm going to build a house. <laughs> <laughs> so, Also, fun things to do with these kind of games for, for building motivation, too, is um, how long have they been hidden away from the real world? How much do they know about the ancient real world? How right. much of it is hearsay? How much is actual fact? The, one of the funnest things to do is sort of describe things in a sort of oblique sort of way where you, you can describe a refrigerator. It's a rectangle. You see handles on it. There seems to be some kind of piping in the back. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and you force the characters to sort of rediscover an entire world mm-hmm. that way. And one of the most important things is to have a very clear vision going into it, what that world looks like. And communicate that to your characters. Because yeah. mm-hmm. once they start building that picture, they're going to start finding things within that picture that they're going to want to gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like you said, very heavy prep. You yeah. have to know yeah. what you're doing yeah. as a GM. Um, sandbo- sandboxes in general require exceedingly heavy prep. Yeah. Like, I wrote 25,000 words for my prep for my uh, Traveler game. Mm-hmm. Like, I wrote half a novel in yeah. trying to put that whole thing together because there's just world building that I'm doing. And then once that world is built, then I have all these places for all of the characters exactly. to interact you're with. Just, you're, you're basically just setting up a canvas for the players to paint on. And, and the, yeah. the, the, the more inviting that canvas is, the, the more that they're going to start putting paint on it. I, I do think that um, character background and stuff, that's one of those things. I mean, exploring or, or exploration as a motivation, as a motivating thing, absolutely. But if there's other things on their background, that's stuff that you can mine if you want to start putting out plot hooks and seeing where they want to go. Mm-hmm. Like if they say, oh, you know, the, the, you know, go go back to the Fallout 4 thing with the, yeah. well, <coughs> his and wife and yeah. son are missing. Right. So, I mean, that obviously you, you have a direction that you know mm-hmm. this guy's going to try to go. Yeah. Also, in that well, kind of thing, there are also motivations. You can go, you know, what, what were your ancestors doing before they came down, before the fall? And you want to recoup some of the glory mm-hmm. of the of the old empire. Oh, sure, yeah. And again, still, like, no matter what your motivation background is, very few plants grow underground with no light. So it's very hard to farm, and it's very hard to get rooms. I don't know what else, <laughs> right, unless you're doing some serious hydroponics. Yeah, I mean, right. yeah, but you still need light. And you still, I yeah. mean, I mean, I don't even know how this. It's magic, so maybe they have some sort of light thing for that. But well, maybe they just have a lot like, of mushroom soup. When you when you are getting out and an apocalypse have happens, that means everything's been raised to the ground. Right. Right. And so, just. Getting food for everybody is a very easy motivation. Right. Aside from everything else, maybe you like want to impress somebody because you're in love with them, or you're a carpenter and want to build houses mm-hmm. in the sun or something. Just uh, put uh, whatever like culture they're in at some sort of risk if they don't do anything. Yes. Once that's there, they are highly motivated. To fix that thing, and and you're you're, you're sort of uh, if, if they're at a, a, a beneath sustenance level existence, right? Yeah. That's a fantastic motivator. Yeah. You're out of water. You've got three days, right? One of the things that happens in stories sometimes it's everything's idyllic until something changes it. Mm-hmm. 
I kind of like nothing is idyllic, and you must change it. Right. Um, not that there's anything wrong with either of those, but in, in an apocalypse situation, yes. Like, uh, when I was running EJ, I had enough food and water to uh, keep everybody alive for a month. Mm-hmm. Just all the time. I was very, very, like, consistent about that because we're a million miles away from anything. If something bad happens, whatever that is, and we can't actually get help or get out, then I'm I'm in charge of making sure everybody stays alive. Right. Um, and if there's more people there, I need to be able to keep them all alive for at least a week. Right. Um, which is a lot easier. Um, mostly water at that point. But, uh... Um, once those food stars get start getting low, you are highly, highly motivated to get them back up. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's something that should always be on your characters' minds and about their minds for their their culture, or whatever that was underground. Right. Yeah, but, but that, and that brings up another point that I wanted to state was that set a baseline normal. Make sure that you spend some time where they're at before they go exploring to set a baseline normal mm. for your player characters. Because unless they have a baseline normal of what it is to exist in what they're used to, the wonder of what they find outside isn't as appealing or as intriguing. Because That's it's true. just there. Right, right. Uh, but it, you, you spend some time, I would say two or three sessions, in wherever they're at, sort of making them understand the conditions under mm-hmm. which they live. Yeah. And when you let them outside, the radical difference in... in, in, in in structure and in the way their lifestyles change will be part of that exploration and will actually start building into motivations for the mm-hmm. characters because they're going, oh my God, how can people not have lived seeing these stars? And you want to mm-hmm. get more people to see the wonderful things that you've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you start looking for other outposts of human survivors and bringing them out because you know that people are afraid of, uh, of their normal and they need to have a little courage to come out and find out what's See, my, my brain goes to, oh my gosh, these trees made of iron are carnivorous and are covered with birds on spikes. Oh my god, this is horrible. <laughs> Why am I even out here? Oh, there, because everybody's starving. Who hurt you, man? Who hurt you, man? And then you really have to like move on. and, and uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I totally get it, though. But <laughs> it, it, you can do it either way. I mean, one of the things that I did was uh, I ran a Mekton game where everybody was a member of one of these uh, sort of robo-sports. Everybody got into power armor, and they did like this sort of like uh, soccer-ish type sport. Uh, but I said this, that we played for months just doing this in like hyper-Tokyo or whatever it is. The thing is, they ended up finding out that there it's like... Um, uh, what was the name of the anime? I can't remember now. But they were basically in a large one spaceship. Punch Man. No, they were in a large spaceship <laughs> that was that, that was basically an arc that was set in orbit of Earth after Space Battleship Yamato. No, no, no. The, no. the thing is, <laughs> they figured out that the, the apex of human culture was 1985. <laughs> oh no! So basically, they created a culture that was 1985 that lasted for about a hundred years <laughs> because it was a manipulated culture right. uh-huh. inside the spaceship, and at, through, and then they find the the, the they actually fall into the actual space. Megazone, that's what, Megazone 23 is the name of the anime that does that. And they found that, that they're actually on a ship, and then it turned into an exploration game. Because mm. I had the entire under part of the ship mapped out. And their, their whole thing was to find the central uh, memory cortex that, was, that, that would return the ship back to Earth. Okay. Um, so th- they lived 
they lived for like six months of game time in that structured world and then when they left it to this dank dark place that actually had some alien stuff in it it totally freaked them out <laughs> because they didn't know how to react. That wasn't mm-hmm. part of their reaction. They were so used to the character they were playing and doing the things that they were doing. Now they're completely ill-equipped for their new for mm-hmm. their new mission, and they had to figure it out. So that's one way of one way of looking at it too. Is that you don't you you, you can have you you flip you flip them upside down on what normal is, and and that's one of the cool things about about having that kind of game. Oh man, you totally inspired a game in me now, where it's a, a heavy gear mega rugby team that is on a cruise to their next place and then the ship gets hijacked by terrorists and so they have to go down and get in their rugby oh, mecha suits but they don't have any guns or anything on it they're not like uh, yeah they're like not military they're not military models. or anything they're but then they have to go and uh, go through the different levels of the ship and it's like a huge feck off like ship with civilians everywhere and then it and turns stuff. into Metroid it's like a platformer <laughs> 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 that kind of but reminds anyways. me of the, the did you ever see the I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it the miniseries Ascension no, I haven't. No. That's about a generation ship that's launched in the 1950s. Oh, I remember hearing about that, but I haven't heard uh, about it. And, and basically... Where is it? What is it on? I, it was on Netflix. It might still oh be on Netflix. God. I'm not sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it basically, that this super wealthy guy launches this generation ship in the 1950s, and they kind of bounce back and forth between the ship and Earth, and it's the you know 2010s on Earth. Mm-hmm. But society on that ship has re- has stuck in the 1950s. Oh no! So so and, and sex to be a girl. The, yeah. the, the <laughs> dichotomy between those two civilizations is fantastic. I won't say anything else more about that the show. Fun. Yeah, that's super fun. But um, really good. Well, anyway. Magic Opti- Octopus. I hope we answered your questions. Yes. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Magic Octopus, for sending in the email. Yeah, twice. Uh, a success story from Steve in Atlanta. Who would like to read Steve in Atlanta's success story? Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. All right. Hey, he's doing another language here. And I, <laughs> <laughs> right after I volunteered to do it. Saluti compagni, gociatori di gocci. I believe is the way. Gocci. That uh, could also be Esperanto. Uh, if it is Esperanto, kudos to you. <laughs> I started uh, to try to learn it in college once. I think Man, everybody started I, to try to learn it. I started, <laughs> I started to try to learn so many languages, and I just fucking suck at them. Right. <laughs> I just figured, you know, Esperanto, because, you know, it's the universal language. <laughs> so it's love. I wanted to write about a wonderful experience in my last gaming session. I have a Dresden Files game set in, 19, in 1897, Turin, Italy. Freaking nice. awesome. Uh, I started with five players, three women, two men, but life caused two players to drop, so down to two women and one man. And and none of these characters are fighty at all. So it was an RP-heavy game, lots of fun so far. As the session got closer, my wife and I decided to get a babysitter for my son so uh, she could join us as well. Side note, previous email, she played the psyker that I shot in the head. Ah. Huh. Middle of your wife, yeah. So we're up to four players now. Awesome. Uh, then one of the players asked if her 12-year-old daughter could join us. She did it the right way and asked the group for honest opinions. We all agreed to give it a shot, warming it, uh, warning it may not be the right style of game for her. I told her I welcome anyone to my table at least to find out if it is a good fit for them and the others. 
So we're back up to five players, yay. And the two new characters actually have some knife skills. Uh, We jumped right into the mystery and drama, and the new characters are brought in easily. I'm glad they can cook. (laughs) Right. Oh, wait. (laughs) Knife skills are superb. Chop this onion. Wrong. Um, I wanted to get it, I wanted to get a fight in, mainly to show how the rules work. Everybody got it right away, and the bad guys were defeated. The most interesting thing was that the twelve-year-old was told, "Since you look out, uh, since you took out this bad guy, you decide how. Uh, are are they knocked out, scared away, killed, etc.? That's how the rules work in Dresden." She thought about it for a minute and said, "I kill him." Her mom slowly looked around at her daughter, and we all laughed, all except for the 12-year-old. She looked at the sheet and confidently proclaimed, confidently proclaimed, it says on my sheet, I am not nice, I am not a nice person. (laughs) (laughs) More laughter. The game continued along with many great memories and laughs. People went home. In my after-game uh, prep, I updated my NPC plans and noted that the new NPC uh, and noted the new NPCs they met. I created a new NPC for the next session, the Inspector, who would be looking for the twelve-year-old as a subject as a suspect in a murder. Excellent. <laughs> Score one for the consequences in a real-life session. Right. She did an awesome job jumping into character, learning the rules, and not following uh, following meekly behind. I think she has a great future in RPGs. Kudos to her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, here. That's awesome. That's freaking awesome. Harumph. Uh, <laughs> watch your harumph. Uh, the other thing you I watch want... Your ass. <laughs> you get a harumph out of that guy. Uh, the other thing I want to bring up... This thing's uh, whopped. <laughs> <laughs> Gave it to the governor harumph. <laughs> uh, we actually have a guy who runs uh, Rock Ridge as a miniatures game <gasps> and dresses up as the governor. As a miniatures game? <laughs> no, he actually took the Wild West uh, rules that uh, Games Workshop has, bought all of the buildings and has Rock Ridge. Does he have the little... Yes, he oh. has it all. And he wears the governor's outfit with the, with the underwear and the... Mr. Lepetamine. <laughs> Governor Lepetamine. So, so freaking good. But I'm sorry, back to you, sir. Uh, the, <laughs> the other thing I want to bring up, I have changed my GM style over the last few years, mostly because of podcasts like Happy Jacks. Thank you. Uh, I create NPCs, give them goals and resources, and update uh, after a session to see what what may have changed. They don't automatically update. Depends on what kind of contacts they have, etc. I let the goals of the NPC for, form the obstacles for the PCs where they are, where they intersect. Yep. Sometimes by accident. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is a refreshing way to jam, and I find I am much more relaxed at the game table. And my post game, uh, my post game headache is a lot is a lot less now. <laughs> there are still some larger uh, plot lines to give the PCs some direction, but very few details are written down in advance. I love it. Thanks for the entertainment, information, and general camaraderie from your Atlanta gaming friend. Cheers, Steve from Atlanta. P.S. If you are in the Southwest around Labor Day, come see uh, come see Dragon Con. Been going on since '92. I heard Dragon Con's really big. Yeah, it's uh, fucking huge. It's fucking huge, and has a great uh, a cosplay community too, mm-hmm. from what I hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I want to go to uh, Dragon Con really badly because one of my players lives in Atlanta, oh, and right. so, so he's been over here a bunch, but I haven't been over to Atlanta. I would love to attend Dragon yeah, Con. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, I got something to do every Labor Day weekend anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I do. Yeah, you do. Oh wait, you're going con? Oh yeah, I yeah. am. Damn it! But that doesn't <laughs> preclude me from going to other cons. I guess. <laughs> Uh, but what happens to the RPG section if you go to another con for the weekend? Tomes takes over for a weekend. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. and he's, he's going to be running games on demand. Again? He's running games on awesome. demand. Excellent. Uh, I trust him. Uh, it, it, absolutely. Um, I was thinking. By the more time you day. come back from from Atlanta, 
suddenly no one's going to be running anything but Powered by the Apocalypse. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> or Everything's going to be a hack no, of something. Or something be... no one's ever heard of. Oh yeah. All, it's all ten candles yeah. at every that, table. You know what? I wouldn't be mad at that. <laughs> have you played ten candles? That game's fucking amazing. I ran it. I, we did an actual so play. I oh, ran awesome. it. Awesome. I've got to do it again. I have gotta not again. yet gotten to play it. We'll, I really want to play organi- it. We'll, okay. We're going to organize for you a ten candles game. And a diplomacy game. Fuck yeah. The wife and I played uh, 10 Handles games at Tones Ran last con, and it was, it was just very happy. It is so good. But dude, you are doing it so right. A, yeah. parenting, done right. Yeah. B, dude, the only way to remove the shackles of all of this tension of trying to push your characters in the direction your story wants to go is to release it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let things happen organically. And it's just so much better for the players and for the GM. And and he's got it. What when when you have a when you're coming up with NPCs, probably the most important thing is what do they want? Yeah, yeah. That's probably. I mean, personality quirks and and outlook on life, all that stuff is is important as well. But what they want really defines who that character is going to be more than anything mm-hmm. else. Well, and I think that is also true of PCs and why people yes. really need to think about what their characters want. Yeah. Um, and when you have people who are really clear on what their characters want, um, interacting with NPCs who are very clear on what they want, and those two things are not the same. Oh, yeah. That's how combat I mean, happens. A lot of people... <laughs> or, or drama, or intrigue, right. or... A lot of people told me that they have problems because they want to be proactive and not reactive as a GM. And I, and I get that, because... You you want to you want to uh, make sure that everybody's entertained, and sometimes the only way that you can ensure that is making sure that everybody's focused in one direction. Mm-hmm. And I get that. But when you come up with a with, with a situation where uh, you clearly know what everybody in the plot's end result wants to be, it's a lot easier to manipulate the situations mm-hmm. through the own NPCs and player motivations instead of trying to create these situations where you're sort of like trying to force people in a direction. You don't have to force anything if you know what somebody wants. Right. Um, and I mean, I really like playing a reactive GM because again, that means the players are going where they want right. to go. Yeah. And that's one of the things that again, you know, uh, Apocalypse World doesn't do everything the best and it's not the best for every system. Or for every like world you want to run it in, but the system is set up where you are reactive. Right. They do something, then you get to do something, and they do something, then you get to do something. You get to do something based on what they do. Um, that is how the system works, and it's set up to make sure that players have agency. Mm-hmm. You can have agency in all games. You just have to make sure if you're a proactive GM, you have to make sure that you're not you're not forcing it. You know, you gotta gotta tease it a little bit. There's, right. a, difference no. there's <laughs> a, like, a little rub, and then maybe maybe like just get a little tip in. <laughs> yeah, and then you know what? And also maybe maybe just talk to them. Like, give open them a kiss the flower. How about of a the kiss story. first? <laughs> open the flower of the story, and, <laughs> and, and, and it's a lot easier than just trying to force the petals yeah. open. You know. Uh, <laughs> Put a more lighthearted edge on this metaphor, uh, but in any case, don't put an edge in there. That's bad. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't think shame. <laughs> Ain't no shame in that game, bro. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, it, it's it, it. It really will 
completely change your life as a GM when you start looking at things towards that perspective. Because if you're trying to strong arm people into following your plot, you're just going to get dissatisfied players that are just going to go, well, I guess this is what I have to do, and just roll dice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, kudos. Yeah, yep. Great job, man. Settings. Food and drink from Andreas in Sweden. Sweden. In go. Sweden. No. Hi, Stu. Oh, there's yours. Oh, damn. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, I'm feeling not so imaginative in a hot and muggy Sweden. What? <laughs> now you gotta read it like this. I'm feeling not so imaginative in a hot and muggy Sweden. So the salutation is a bit less extravagant today. <laughs> now you sound like you sound like the the, the priest from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> What's his name? Oh, Tito, uh, Father Guido Sarducci. Sarducci. Father Guido Sarducci. Father Guido Sarducci. <laughs> not uh, after listening. <laughs> so go back to your own voice. <laughs> I felt Sorry I did that. <laughs> I have to share some thoughts I have on the use of props and the value thereof. I'm a huge fan of props. So am I. Uh, when playing in quote-unquote deep settings, i.e. settings where there is a lot of setting information and social roles and mores. I mores. Find, mores. Like the eels. Right, exactly. <laughs> I but with props no why. To be of great value. In a game of orcs and elves, most people don't need any help to nudge their imagination, as there are many, so many common cultural references. But in a setting that feels weird, like medieval quote-unquote Japan is to Americans and Europeans, like L5R, I think they're a great tool. Mm-hmm. I will offer up two examples from my own gaming experience. When we played Bushido, uh, an old FGU game set in Japan. I know that. Oh, that's yeah. fantasy games way back. Yeah, that's uh-huh. way back. Yeah. Actually, they came. That they made a new edition recently. Really? Of that? Yeah. Because oh, I know I they put out. Is they still around? Yeah, they started in the mid seventies, right? No, I think another company got it because oh. I saw. I saw. Uh, I saw Bushido miniatures being produced again. Wow. So. That is that is a uh, a long callback. Uh. Our game master's kid cooked us up a Japanese meal served with black lacquer chopsticks. Uh, at another game, when I was game mastering a game set in Tecumel, I served a meal of beef stew and sweet potato, which works excellent as a melu, melu, melu stew, melu stew. No, the H is silent. Melu stew. Why not? Sipping mash wine and. <laughs> Fuck this. <laughs> we respect all foreign languages and peoples. Yes. Well, I sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes difficult. I don't think these are Swedish. I, I, don't, I, I know that they're from a culture different from the two ones that I'm used to. Yes. Uh, yes. Definitely re- respect all, especially food. I respect yeah. all cultures' food. Uh, I don't expect. I don't respect English food. I love English food. Pies, meat pies. Are you fucking serious? All Pasties? right. Oh awesome. my gosh! Yeah, Yorkshire pudding isn't pudding. They invented the goddamn um, language. They can call it whatever the fuck they want. Our pudding isn't pudding. Okay, well then, what's our pudding then? Moose. Uh, uh, yeah, but it's not. It's a totally different st- artificial moose. Yeah, <laughs> um, really. Chocolate flavored ours mud is um, uh, it's like a not even like a it's custard. Custard, yeah, yeah, yeah it's it really is like a custard a custard flavored custard. Yeah, yeah. So we really should call it Jello custard. Well, it's 
It's just no, custard no, and jello. Well, custard yes, it technically has dairy in it. I don't think that that has any dairy in it. Oh, no, no, there's no does. food in it. Do you, yeah. you use milk to make jello custard? Let's or just say it's, custard, it's, jello, it's jello the craft dinner of desserts. Yeah, or you could just <laughs> yeah. make you could just make custard and then add like uh, chocolate powder or to it. You like, can get some of that. Uh, what's that uh, Italian cheese that's somewhat flavorless? It's like a cream. Oh, Mascarpone, mascarpone. Yeah. You put chocolate in it, and it's delicious. It's and a, yeah, yeah. It, that's the only cheese that tastes like water. And it's I love mascarpone. <laughs> serious? Oh no, it's so good. Man, your food tastes, sir. I we, like everything. We are against <laughs> you. When I went, when I went to when I went to to England, I had two good meals. No, that's not true. I, I had more than two good meals, but I had two good meals. I had good meals in two places. Indian food in London. That's some of the best Indian, Indian food in the world. Yeah, yeah, was yeah. freaking awesome. Yeah. Uh, Birmingham uh, has its uh, official dish is uh, tikka masala. Oh, really? Yeah. And the other place was in Bath. Mm-hmm. Because as you're getting to Bath, you're passing tons of farmland. And I ordered a salad in a restaurant in Bath, and I almost cried. Because it's it, so good. It act, well, it looked like a salad. It wasn't brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and the vegetables were crisp and fresh, and I'm like, I missed you so. <laughs> when when I was in New York, we passed my brother and I passed a pub that had super nachos in the window, and so in nachos, oh man, I haven't had Mexican food in almost a week. <laughs> Let's go get some nachos. I'm oh, Southern Californians. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. No 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 no. It was like stale tostitos, tostitos uh, ground beef, some beans. Cheddar cheese. It's like ordering the sashimi <laughs> at a steak, sashimi at a steakhouse. But why? <laughs> really or at a at a grocery store. At a grocery um, store. But then when we got like up to store Edinburgh, every week, uh, we got haggis there, and oh my oh, fucking haggis god, haggis is delicious. the bomb. Yeah. fucking delicious. Real haggis is amazing. No well, matter what. I had haggis on. once in America, and it tasted like balls. No, um, I mean, but, but haggis like done haggis. right. Yeah, well, oh I, I used to. Go, yeah. There used to be a homebrew supply place in Downey that I used to mm-hmm. go to all the time. And he, his uh, wife, I think, was a uh, English expat, and she had a lot of family there. So they would ship stuff to him mm. that he would sell in the store. And he had frozen haggises and uh, blood pudding and oh, all kinds good. of stuff that he would have and sell there. But it's stuff from there. It's not yeah. blood puddings are cool, but it's nothing like morcilla. No. Mm. What's that? That's a Spanish uh, oh. blood sausage. It's I will. I will absolutely best. try that. Um, but back to, <laughs> back to <laughs> this other stuff. Uh, oh, or it's like called in our world ap- apricot brandy and lassi, which oh, okay. are both oh. delicious. What is lassi? I don't know. Lassi, lassi is, is a yogurt, yogurt drink, drink. Yeah. an Indian yogurt drink. Oh, okay. It's flavored yeah. with mango. Yeah, I love mango lassi. Yeah, but I like yogurt everything. Yeah, me yeah too. yogurt's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and the players found it impossible not to be immersed. So I'd suggest food and drink to be the ultimate prop. Larp yourself to immersion. To conclude, a question. Don't use an immersion blender, though, because that... Well, to make a lot of you to do that. Well, you can, but maybe, <laughs> no, not your, not your, your, your friends. Oh, no, not on your friends. <laughs> no, but, I mean, if, if you have someone with no teeth, oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. might want to blend the yeah. sushi blend the yeah. <laughs> yeah. and give them a sushi Slurpee. <laughs> oh, thank God. No, we th- that's known as chum. <laughs> yes, it would be, yes. <laughs> and if you fed that to me, we would no longer be chums. <laughs> well, you have teeth. I wouldn't do that. Uh, to conclude, a question. I am a sucker for deep settings, and things like Glorantha, Tecumel, or Tadaslanta really draw me in. I know some of the Happy Jacks hosts love World of Darkness and L5R, 
some other game worlds with a lot of lore. But how about settings not based on a world? Are there any lore-rich se- lore settings you all like? And what are your feelings about those and how they help or hinder your game in the, with their barrier of entry for immersion? Anyway, drink! Andreas. Andreas. Um, um, lots of things to talk lots about. Lots of things. So, so in tappy in my wheelhouse yeah. right now. I don't know if I've actually mentioned this on the show. Um, I went to a Japanese culinary school. I'm actually a sushi chef uh, and have been for about 20 years. And I literally pitched this idea to Geek and Sundry as a show. Like, making food for your role-playing group of for the, the game that you're running in order to make it more fun and immersive, etc. Um, I have... A, a treatment done for an <laughs> for an L5R cookbook that I'm actually like a quarter of a way done, like actually putting recipes together for. So like I am 100% <laughs> down with this. Now I'm of the opinion that uh, there are two things that define culture in a way that other people can relate. One is language. One is food. Mm-hmm. Those are the the keys. If and if you ever really want to want to be really connect with a with with a culture. Eat their food, learn their language. Um, there's a, a writer I really like uh, named S. M. Sterling, who write, has written with almost everybody in like the uh, fantasy science fiction realm in like the 90s. Um, but wrote especially books that he wrote by himself. He had this massive appendix session, and oftentimes would have like types of food they would eat, like. Uh, how long they've been in a certain area, certain of their languages. Well, he- hell, uh, Dragon Riders of Pern, they had a recipe for that yeah. coffee bark drink. Yeah, claw. I've yeah. made it. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, with with my niece when I got her the book, we've made bubbly pies. Nice. I mean, uh, it's it's really important. Like once you start getting into the food a culture is eating, then you start really making that culture immersive. Like you're right. making it real. Mm-hmm. Um, like for L five R, I have. Um, like opinions on what each of the different clans food is like based on how I feel about the culture like the lion's food are is the most like what we know as a Japanese um, and the reason I feel that way is because they are very much steep in um, tradition yeah so it's the most traditional clan has the most Traditional food. Uh, the way I interpret them is that it's traditional Japanese inland food. Right. The crane to have traditional um, uh, Japanese seafood. Well, yeah. I like I like the crane to be more experimental with their food because they are the ones who create what. Yeah, they're like, the artists. New right. food is like there's a place called Enaka here in uh, L.A. that is it's the best kaiseki in that I've ever had, which is a very formal traditional Japanese meal. But the woman. Who is the chef? That's it's very unusual for. Well, it's, it's more usual now, but it's very unusual still for a woman to be the head chef of a very, very upscale restaurant like that. And she does really interesting twists on everything that you would not find in any sort of traditional kaiseki. Mm-hmm. And that sort of food is what I see yeah. the uh, the crane doing. Oh, okay, right, right. that makes sense. But anyways, yeah, I mean, 
food could actually be a way, a great way to, to introduce immersion into into a game, especially when you're first starting off, starting off with something like that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or even when you're role playing, actually being at a banquet or a meal as your character is eating that food that, to sort of give it the full. Oh, and it, like an in character meal, but an actual meal. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love that. That just sounds great and entertaining to me right. in general. And and if you're doing like a a like. Western D&D style game Stew is really easy to mm-hmm. make oh, yeah. um, And you get some good Crusty bread and you guys can just Have a great time yeah, Stew is almost universal in the western world uh, yeah. Chili, chili. chili. Yeah. I, I like to think of chili as Western curry Yes <laughs> <It is. laughs> uh, Yeah totally Yeah uh, and, But there are a lot of ways, a lot of ways, that, a lot of props, and a lot of ways that you can uh, introduce immersion in, into a, into a game. Uh, I mean, even if it's just like uh, I learned a lot. I, I learned some origami because my character knew origami, and I wanted to bring stuff to the game where I had like the little frog and the crane mm-hmm. and stuff, and I would give away as gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, I think that. Although they're great tools to building immersion, it's absolutely no substitute for really uh, wrapping your brain around a culture and a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that these things should be sort of introductory things, should be like things that will draw you into it, but it, it's not something that's going to replace all of the hard work that you do, maybe doing some research on, on things doing some and, and building up some background for your character. Uh, like in, in Cortex for Edison, I did so much research on British nobility. Mm-hmm. I did a bunch of research on literally the type of science that I have the character practicing. I, I tried to learn as much as I can about what I built the ba- the character of the background to be and the culture that he came from. And there, I am personally been enriched by the deep Wikipedia dives that I've done. <laughs> Simply because I wanted to build a character that has certain background or from a certain setting, uh, it, 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 it's it's one of the great things about RPGs is the fact that it'll open your mind to mm-hmm. whole completely new worlds of, of stuff. The, there, the, when I when I um, first ran L five R, the L five R fourth edition book is probably the only RPG book I I read cover to cover, and I started in the very beginning. Have you read the fourth edition book at all? They start out with. Here is the origin story of this world, mm-hmm. and yeah. it l- literally takes you by the hand and takes you through. This is why this culture is this way, and they do a really good job of pulling you into it. The problem is, <clears throat> I think you're an exception as a player. Okay, most players, n- very few players, are going to go through and read a thirty-page introduction to the game world. I mean, there are some, yeah, but. If, well, in my experience, yeah. not very many. <laughs> Research is also one of my favorite things too. Yeah, right. well, maybe but, yeah. we're just a special kind of nerd, right? You yeah. know? But, but, but I mean, literally, most 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 players they, they won't, mm-hmm. they just won't do it. The GM and and, and that's uh, kind of why it's the GM's job to sort of be the sort of well, your character is from here, so you would know these things. Oh, okay, and you know, and to, to try to lead them along in that way, but. It's very. I, I don't know. Even with good players, it's very rare for to give them more than a couple pages of of stuff. Background. Um, I would actually disagree that food is somehow a substitution for research, just because in order to really get into like what they eat and why, you really have to get into what the culture, 
uh, uh, respects, well, what they're, what they're, what's around them. What's I, like, I agree. If you if you start looking at say like the crab, their food is about uh, very hearty and stores well. Right. That's what they want. Right. And that that ext- is extrapolated from the entire culture of that group. I just think of big trouble in little China. We're in that. They're in that pit with all those fish, and the guy picks up the dried fish and just bites the head off. Want some? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let me re- let me rephrase fish. what I said. Uh-huh. I what what I what I intended to say is that use of props in general is no real substitute. Food is a little bit different because there's a culture there. There's a, a, a unique cultural touchstone to it. So, right. but the thing is, you can't have a meal. All the time in every game, right? No, uh, and it is—it's a cherry on top yeah, exactly. of your character. Not exactly, your character but, is not made of cherries. But the thing is, it, it can be used to inspire your players' curiosity. <laughs> and if you inspire your players' curiosity, they might actually go to that at nth degree. Right. Sure, uh, and and it could very well be that they were that you know. Uh, as a player, they were never titillated or, or excited about trying to find out about another culture. Uh, but if you're playing with a with a game group that plays a more standard type of fantasy uh, or sci-fi setting that's sort of like a like Star Trekky, Star Wars, D and D, L five R, but L five R not L five R, but D and D or Pathfinder. That's one thing because all those cultural moorings are sort of like standardized. But games like L five R and games like the ones that you mentioned are a completely different animal uh, mm-hmm. and and require you to invest yourself as much into the culture as into the gameplay. Uh, I can't I can't imagine an L5R game where no one has gone to the trouble where like even the GM has not oh, yeah, gone to the trouble. Even, you couldn't do it. It would it, that would be such a hollow experience. It basically yeah. just be any other fantasy no, basically game it's, except it, it's, with, it's the yeah. 3.5 edition of Oriental Adventures which is basically exactly, exactly what what right. happened. Um, I really want now for you to run a Castilian 7th C game and we have tapas <laughs> every game. That would be awesome, actually. <laughs> right? Well, I am a Sandoval. Uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, actually, legitimately, if like 280 people died spontaneously, I'd be king of Spain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 279. <laughs> uh, but it... But now going on to the to the other questions about uh, games that have immersive settings that mm-hmm. are not traditional uh, real world type or or fantasy settings, there anything by FASA from the eighties has stacks of novels and literally hundreds of years of background usually attached to it. Mm-hmm. Look at BattleTech. There's mm-hmm. literally about two thousand years of lore. Their timeline starts in the eighties. I, I only know one person who has read all of it. Yeah, and he and he's <laughs> and he knows a madman. <laughs> uh, Shadowrun has it's incredible tons of background incredible. story. Um, what other games? Uh, uh, Rift, Earth, Earth Dawn, Earth Dawn, uh, but Earth Dawn could actually. Co- Totally be put into the Shadowrun thing because it's basically uh, Shadowrun's prehistory. Yeah, uh, in any any Warhammer role playing game, any yeah. Warhammer role playing game. Oh my God, the lore, uh, uh, and, and and those are just a few mentions. A lot of these games uh, have novelizations, have hundreds and hundreds of game supplements. Um, uh, you can also try uh, somewhat unique settings that that may not be. Traditional for you. I mean, like if you if you're a GM and you're a Doctor Who fan, you have a bunch of players that have never watched Doctor Who. Introducing them to the Doctor Who mythos is pre- 
is tantamount to introducing them to a whole new culture. Oh, yeah. Um, and they have to really be interested in doing that. Yeah. Like, you need buy-in. You need buy-in, what it comes yeah. down to. The, is, the thing is, games like that, the games like L5R, which I'm going to use as my prime example, uh, are just unique in that, in that they require a certain amount of, uh, of investment by the players in trying to mold their head around a completely way, different way of right. thinking. Because mm-hmm. uh, when you're playing L5R, you have to understand samurai means servant. They're, they're, it's a service-based culture. Your personal identity and, your, and, and who you are is not as important as your loyalty to your, your daimyo. So it's such a radical, different, mm-hmm. radically different way of thinking for like the you know your cowboy centric sort of narratives that you see in the West. That really put going in there and understanding <coughs> that no, I would very much rather kill myself than do X or Y. Right. Mm-hmm. It's that it's difficult. I mean, when we first started playing L5R, literally the first game of L5R we ever played as a group that wasn't a playtest run by John Wick, (coughs) I let my character die Kenobi-style because losing the duel was more politically satisfactory Mm -hmm. than winning it. And Fucking badass. And the thing is, (laughs) the very first game, and everybody just looked at me like... So that's how we're going to play this game. Yep, that's how we're going to play this game. Yeah, and it was fucking awesome. It was like... (laughs) Yeah, it just totally Kenobi'd out, uh-huh. and 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 I wouldn't have done that in any other game other than L five R because I, I understood what what sacrifices needed to be made by certain samurai, and there were there were great mechanics in the game that if you died honorably and had a good death, you got a whole bunch of points <coughs> to make a better character to follow. Oh, your cool! Yeah, <laughs> super cool. Yeah, the thing is, the whole game the the game was designed around your character. Your your character is going to die doing something noble and sacrificial. So let's. Give you a bonus, mm-hmm. a Benny to yeah. do that, some kind of motivation right. to do that. But yeah, it, it I, unless you have players that really want to invest in that, you're sort of losing half of the fire of the game. Yeah. So it's one of those yeah. things you have to tailor your game to your table, and you have to be smart enough to know what will and won't play. It's great to experiment, but that's what one shots are great for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if they go, "Wow, I really like this world," then they can get into it and yeah. make an, right. a character that's more for it. Um, one of the things that I kind of want to bring up is like in a game of orcs and elves most people don't need help to nudge their imagination Uh, I I don't know if I agree with that statement because elves and orcs can have very different cultures based on what the GM is trying to do right I mean your orcs are very different than Tolkien orcs yeah Um, elves can be done in many many different ways I mean just they have pointy ears and are skinny is kind of like the same defining factor and I think it's really interesting if you want to do food as a um, an immersion thing, make orc food, make elven food. <coughs> actually, oh we, yeah, we, we, right? we played Star Trek once, and I actually made I invented a Klingon dish for for the group, <laughs> <laughs> and and like because uh, it was really tasty, but it was like kind of weird because what I did is I took some tamales and I cut off the ends and put them in segments, so it looked like a worm. <laughs> uh, so basically, you're, that w- the whole thing was that they, they force fed this worm this meat and it and let it ferment, and it, that was the whole thick Klingon thing. But it looked the part, but it was completely delicious. That's so rad. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I was I was fortunate enough to eat at a, a restaurant earlier this year. Um, it's a it was a sixteen course meal. Holy! But magic. every single course is very very small, mm-hmm. and okay. it was in the springtime, so it was all seasonal, and so they had edible flowers throughout all of it. Oh, lovely! Mm-hmm. And like so, one of the 
appetizer courses was like this cookie that was made of caramelized and slightly burnt onion, mm. like mixed in with like a barley flour. Oh man! And yep. then there was a very tart, um, uh, almost almost like a uh, a currant mm-hmm. jam on it, and then these edible flowers, like about fifteen tiny edible flowers that were very like minty placed on it and that was one of the courses <coughs> that is fucking high elven food right there oh yeah absolutely well, right? yeah. sure um, and so like with that in mind now I totally want to do a, an elven dinner mm-hmm. because I've had this thing that, that inspires me so but back to your point though there's a drastic difference between Scandinavian elves and Irish uh, fae oh, yeah. there's a lot there's a lot of different interpretation where it comes to mm-hmm. and uh, one of the greatest things about playing in a fantasy setting, and one of the and the reasons why we love Tol- people like Tolkien, is that they built this really vivid, rich world. And <coughs> when you're running that kind of game, a lot of these things are left purposefully generic for you as a GM, so you can actually fill in the blanks for those individual cultural touchstones mm-hmm. that you might want to introduce. Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, you can have a, a deeply fulfilling, rich political <coughs> game in a fantasy setting that's radically different than mm-hmm. anything you've ever noticed if you just go through the trouble of making it up. Right. I don't ever want to run a game that is less deep or immersive than L5R. Mm-hmm. Like, if that is my goal, to go that that deep or deeper, uh, depending on, I mean, L5R is a really large, has a large country with many different cultures in it. But right. whatever I'm doing, <coughs> I really, I mean, again, for, I wrote, I made these five different cultures for the Traveler games that I, I wrote languages for them. Right. You know, I was like, this is the type of clothes they wear. This is, you know, their social mores. This mm-hmm. is, you know. Yeah, well, like, my dwarves in my, in, in my fantasy setting, uh, the king just owned the bank. Oh, That's and, all the and, and insurance is how he make money and, and stuff. And, and, and the reason why he was king is because he actually owned all the actual physical resources, <laughs> and then the merchant guilds needed to borrow money from them to do their their thing. So that's the reason why he was king. Okay. Uh, and the, their language, their written language, only the names of nobles had rounded parts because it's easier to chisel straight lines. <laughs> so things of high import, their gods, their nobles, were all had cur- had a separate curved language that was dif- specifically more difficult to craft because the dwarves thought the more difficult the craft is, the more you honor whatever it is that you're oh, okay. That's awesome. I mean, I had all that so cool. <laughs> I had all these individual little cultural things about uh-huh. my dwarves and the class system that they lived in and the way that they got married and all this stuff. And I made it up. Why? Because I, I love the, the race, and I had an entire campaign set in this in this dwarven hold that was a, a fallen dwarven hold. But the thing is, like ar- almost like archaeologists, the players ended up learning all these mm-hmm. things about the dwarven culture. And, and and in the final conflict, the fact that they knew dwarven culture because they were fighting a mad dwarven god mm-hmm. was the one was what saved them. All those were all those little things were little clues. Oh, that that's so that, cool to that part. I mean, um, so yeah, yeah. I, I mean. A lot of different ways you can use culture to make things more immersive. I think this is one of the reasons, like this topic is one of the reasons why I like to run sandbox games. Because I put so much effort into the world that I'm exhausted and I want to have a fucking story too. But once you've done that, I mean, whenever you do a game, your world building is almost always going to be your, if you're not using an already predefined setting, that's always going to be your biggest investment. Your biggest investment. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And to come up with one plot hook after that does not take that much longer. That's true. <laughs> well, but what happens is I come up with one plot hook, they do it, and then go in a completely different direction, and I have a great time. Right. As but, you should, but the like, thing is, you built this huge sandbox, yeah, so you're and fine. So, yeah, so you're fine. Right. 
players sometimes will find their own motivation. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so it. great. Well, yeah, that was that was Bill in my Traveler game. Mm-hmm. He got pissed off because of part of the backstory, like of one of the cultures that he found out that his character didn't know about. He got furious, convinced everybody to go with him, and they went on, you know, this crusade. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> I would love to follow Bill on a crusade. <laughs> I'm all for it. Fair enough. <laughs> FYI, I just looked up fantasy game. F was it fantasy games FG. unlimited? Mm-hmm. Yeah, FG. They still exist. Oh my goodness! I'm right now buying a PDF of uh, space opera. Oh my god! Oh, no, I've had still that available. Game. I know. <laughs> we tried playing it, Holy but I want to try again. <laughs> that game was systemically horrible. Though. <laughs> uh, it, I, I remember us spending six hours trying to make characters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very complex. Very there's, primitive. There's game. A, yeah, yeah, there's a reason why modern <laughs> systems are are modern. Right, but I'm going to get it and take a walk down memory lane. That's. I think it's also great to just like parse old systems. Like, why did they? Th- it's almost like archaeology. Like, right. why did they think this was a good idea? Right. Like, what sort of things were they going off of? What ideas? I tried to do that with Palladium, that? and I almost went mad. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no! But the fact that he's never changed it makes you go mad. <laughs> Actually, I, I am mad. I'm just covering up real good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we end it? Uh, I, I think, think so, yeah, I think that's good All right, Next week, we won't be doing a show on Friday night Because we're going to be at a game convention But, Saturday at 8pm Pacific time Go to happychecks.org slash live If everything goes correctly We will be streaming live from Gateway Gateway? Gateway 2018, 2018. Right? Absolutely Yes Gateway 2018. It's I think. Orcon, GameX. Gateway is the gateway to the next year. I'm, I'm talking about... <laughs> oh, that's a good way to remember. No, I, I mean right as in if everything goes correctly. Everything's going to go great. Okay. When doesn't it? <laughs> Their internet connection's okay. It's okay, man. The thing is, I have somebody to blame if somebody goes, something goes wrong, and it makes me perfectly happy to And that's that all you need. That's <laughs> all I need. <laughs> all right. Fuck you, uh. Mike. <laughs> it's Mike's fault. Yeah, it is. He should have been here. <laughs> Nobody's more disappointed than Thank you for joining us for season 22, episode 13 of Happy Drinks Every Podcast. My name is Stu. This is Tappy. This is Jim. And we'll see you at Gateway 2018, whether you're there or not. Uh, and let's see, uh, Sunday we're playing L5R again. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yes. And uh, there's games next week. Go to happychecks.org slash schedule to find all that information. Yeah. That's please, it. Please join Team Beatstick in L5R. Join Team Beatstick. Thank you very much. We're the song.
to tell me That my nightly drinking it would kill me He said there was no doubt that my liver would give out But nothing but that foam yeah will fill me So to those that pass, I'll raise a glass For it seems that all my doctors I'm outlasting